Hello, I'm Devin Higgins, and welcome to Episode 4 of the first season of Skull Sessions. If the last five years have told us anything, is that the long-standing generational battle over racism, civil rights, and equality in America has again become an unignorable issue. In the wake of racially biased police shootings in cities across the country, black America is again demanding action and change from a white America that sadly, as has been the case for over 200 years, remains reluctant to do either. I met documentary filmmaker Melissa Lowry more than a decade ago when we attended college together in Oregon. Like me, education came later in life than she'd planned, but as a girl growing up in the affluent suburbs of Portland, it was impossible to ignore that she was one of the few black residents in an otherwise all-white community. In 2014, she set out to chronicle what that life was like, not only for her, but for other black women in other communities around the country. The result was the documentary Black Girl in Suburbia, which Melissa said not only helped her as a storyteller and mother of two daughters, but connected with generations of other black women who also felt isolated in a white-dominated society. Melissa talks about making the film and also gives a first-person perspective of the Black Lives Matter protests in Portland over the last year. We cover the importance of reevaluating our history to help shape the future and how if we really want to end decades of racial strife in this country, It'll require white America yield leadership of this new civil rights movement to the black Americans who've been in the fight since the beginning. Thanks for joining me for my fourth Skull Session with documentary filmmaker Melissa Lowry. I will start this, I don't want to necessarily say with a confession, but... You know, it, it's hard for me to not be thinking about everything that's gone on in the last year or two and think that this is a conversation I've been wanting to have, but also the anxious side of me is been reluctant to have it, which I think ties in a lot to the conversation that hopefully we're going to have over the next hour and the conversation mm-hmm. that we as a culture and a society need to have for a lot longer than that. But yeah. Considering where you are in Portland, Oregon, uh, and given what's happened there over the last year, if you can, just kind of encompass what your perspective on it is, what you've seen, what you've experienced, and kind of from somebody who's right there in the middle. Yeah. Um, as you said, uh, there we have been in transition, actually, for, I think, for a while now, quite a few years, but I think it's, it's we're starting to feel that um in the last you know year um where it's like it's in things are in front of our face that we can't unsee for all of us um uh so being here in portland and you know which got a lot of recognition this year with the protests and um which you know were just happened back to back to back and i was like oh my god of course this is how portland is now going to be seen and on the map. We already were that kind of funky city anyways. And now um, we have this, which is such a main focus, but also there was so much not accurate information that was going out, you mm-hmm. know, about what was happening. Um, I will share my perspective as a black woman being living in Portland and has lived in, in Portland um, most of my life. Um, and living through what we've all been living through this, this past year, um, it's been really difficult, like emotionally, spiritually, it has been, um, really difficult, uh, 
it's hard enough being uh, one of very few, um, you know, in Oregon. And Oregon has its own history of, you know, Black exclusionary laws and um, race overt racism and um, oppression of folks of color. So um, that in itself is you know, the realities that we're, we are, are coming to head right now. Um, I would say this past year, you know, with the protests, I was, I don't know how I was feeling about the protests because again, Oregon is a very white uh, state. Um, and for me, it was, it was hard in a way to be, I joined a couple because my daughters were very involved over the summer um, and our activists themselves and, and, you know, I'm all for marching for a cause and being a part of the movement. I'm all for that. But it's one thing to be a Black person in a movement where it's a sea of white faces yelling Black Lives Matter. Um, that to me um, was really weird. I don't know another word to describe it. It's, it's weird, right? Like you're all for the cause. You're like, absolutely Black Lives Matter. But when you, you see just a sea of white faces and you don't see a lot of faces that look like you and all those faces are shouting Black Lives Matter. It's just like, yeah, they do. But it's weird being just the one <laughs> Black person, you know, in this movement. So for me, it was I didn't feel connected to the movements that were happening in Portland. Um, and it's not to say that there weren't any black folks or folks of color that were part of these, these um, protests. There were, and it, again, I'm not knocking the movement or the protests or anything like that. They were amazing. People came out, um, but as again, one of very few in those, some of those situations, it was, it was hard. Um, and I remember telling my girls, I think we went to a couple of them and I was like, all right, girls, I can't do it anymore. I can't, unless, unless we are with a group of other black folks or other folks of color, I, I, I can't do any more of these large, massive um, protests. And, you know, again, being in Portland, um, there's not, you know, we have black folks here, but we're all kind of, you know, either way east or way west or living in Vancouver. There's not this community that used to be, um, you know, pre-90s um, when I was growing up. That community wasn't there anymore or isn't there uh, anymore. And so what I came to, and I'll go back. So even just some examples of why it was weird for me being part of these larger groups. Um, there was one point during one of the protests we went to where you know, and it's probably a thousand people, maybe um, large group. Um, and we're somewhere, you know, in the middle, I think. And, you know, we kind of stop and we do a prayer and kind of recognize some of the victims of, of police brutality and murder. Um, and it's silent. And then the, the leaders was uh, like, okay, so we want to, we want to invite all of uh Black folks. We want Black folks to come forward, to come to the front. Um, and I was like, oh, that's great. So I grabbed my girls. I'm like, let's let's go to the front because obviously there's more Black. There's This is exactly what I want to march with, you know, um, other Black folks. 
So as we start moving and walking towards the front, it's just this applause. Like we just were on, like we're on the prices right or, or something. Like it's like, yeah, all right, woohoo. And I was like, why are you applauding us for just walking to the front and being black people? Like it, it was just this very strange <laughs> kind yeah. of, um, you know, moment of like it's we're like we're on a game show or something. And I thought that how how strange is that to applaud black folks just walking up to the front to have space, to have some space, you know. I it was just the strangest thing. And then another one that we went to, um uh, I went with a neighbor who because I was gonna leave, I was gonna drop my kids off. Because I'm that kind of mom. I'm like, all right, you want to go get in the middle of it? Good luck. We'll see you in about an hour. Take care. You know, hope to come back. You know, go fight the power. Mm-hmm. You know. Um, but one of my neighbors, I uh, was there and was like, are you coming? Come on. And I was like, oh. So get out, start walking with her. Um, and, you know, um, her kiddos and my kiddos, we, we kind of, they were like, we want to start a chant. So I said, great. You guys go up to the front you know, lead it, go do it, you know. Um, and there was probably a couple hundred people at this this particular protest. And so as we're walking, and it's in our town that we live in, in Hillsborough. And as we're walking down the street, we're walking through the town and there was people out in front, like, you know, who had heard and I found out from a, a friend who's on those neighborhood, um, like apps, there had been a message that had went out, like they're gonna riot in Hillsborough and protect your property and you know, something, something, something. So as we're walking through the town, there's these people who are like sitting, you know, leaning against their cars and, you know, um, you know, by their storefronts and just, you know, stone faced and everything. And we're walking by and we walked up by this one store and there's a woman in there and she's flipping us off, just for no reason, just giving us the middle finger as we're walking by. And I'm like, so, you know, again, this is about human rights and it's too bad that you all don't don't support human rights. That's unfortunate. This is about humanity and it's unfortunate that you don't see that and you're pissed off for some reason that people are walking <laughs> down the street. Um, and then, uh, you know, we weren't really hearing a lot of chanting or anything. So we were like, we're, cause our girls were all the way, we were kind of in the back and the girls were all the way up in the front. Um, and so we were like, okay, we'll meet up and see what's going on with them later. So the March ends up at this, you know, like downtown and everybody kind of starts to gather and there's speakers that are starting to come up and we find the girls and they're like, oh my gosh, mom, like, we, we were trying to start a chant and then we got shushed by this white woman who said like that this is a quiet this is a quiet protest and that we we shouldn't be yelling and disturbing the neighbors and I was like what um and you know I just thought this is a black it was a black lives matter march mm-hmm. and there are black children who would like to chant black lives matter and they're getting shushed by a white woman telling them that this is a quiet protest. Right. Cause so, they don't want to upset the neighbors. Cause they don't want to upset the neighbors. And I was like, well, they should have thought about that before we started walking down the street, like getting that taken care of. Mm-hmm. So they were just frustrated and like, you know, what is the point of all of, again, and it's majority white folks. Right. Right. 
Um, so, you know, we're sitting there and I was getting so frustrated and um, they had, you know, they were like, you know, we'd like for people to come up. If you want to talk, you, you know, feel free to come up and grab the bullhorn or whatever. And there was this man, this gentleman who kept, they had had the mayor um, like come and speak um, and say like a couple words or whatever. They were like, you know, um, you know, can you, this is your city and there's, you know, the city is in need of change and, you know, whatever. And what do you have to say to the people, blah, blah, blah. And there was this gentleman that just kept yelling, what are you gonna do, Steve? Our, our mayor's name is Steve. What are you gonna do, Steve? Um, and like interrupting him and it was just so rude. And I just thought like, what does that, what does that prove or what does that do to yell at the mayor that you have grievances with in front of all these people that's supposed to support black people like and you're taking over and distracting and trying to make a scene and you know all this kind of stuff so I was like I can't take it anymore I gotta go say something so I like went up and I asked the, the folks you know I was like can I say can I just say something please like there's things happening today that I just I'm not okay with and I'm a black person so I feel like I could speak at a black lives matter I just want to in theory out. yeah <laughs> so you know I I I don't really remember what I said, but I remember kind of yelling back to this gentleman who, you know, where I, I just said, listen, you don't, don't throw stones. Like, don't ask Steve what he's doing. Like, what are you doing? You know, was he, a, was and, he a white gentleman or a black gentleman? Yeah. No, he was white. Okay. And he said, um, he said, well, we have to hold Steve accountable. And I was like, well, how about you hold yourself accountable? Like, what are you going to do after this March to support right. black? Like, what are you doing? in your home and in your world, you know, to support outside of this March, which this will be done here in like 20 minutes. So what are you, how are you going to support afterwards? Right. Don't yell at Steve. I don't even know Steve. I don't know what Steve does. I don't know what Steve did, but don't yell at him <laughs> if you don't even, if you don't do anything. Right. Sure. Um, so, so those two, those two specific experience experiences for me, I just, I was kind of done um, mm -hmm. in participating um, because it just, it took too much emotional energy and just, um, it felt, it didn't feel, you know, and not to say people were out there doing the work and doing their thing, but then you had people also taking selfies and like, it was this kind of like, look what I did kind of thing, right? Which again, for a black person, we don't want to see that. If you're here to support, then you got to be here to support and not look cute and get the selfie and, you know, say I did something. I, I went to a march, you know. Um, so I actually, and I don't know what I was thinking. I actually was like, I am going to, um, I am going to organize my own march for Black folks in mm -hmm. like, because I need that. And I, and others that I know need that too. I right. want to, I want to do a Black Lives March for black people, by black people. Who knew? Who would have thunk it, right? Radical um, idea. Radical idea. And and again, the images that were coming out of Portland was was white folks for the most part. So I thought, how how great would that be to have um, a visual or to have a moment for centered around black folks in Portland, because, and again, you think of the history in Portland and gentrification and redlining and, and all of these things. And so I, I 
again, I'm not an organizer. I've never put on a march. I've never done a rally. I've never done any of that. But I have resources and I know people. And so I reached out to those folks and I reached out to my resources and um, we pulled something together. It took us a couple of months to plan, but we had this amazing day mm-hmm. in Portland. Um, and it just, it was joyous. And and we, um, there were white folks involved, but uh, it was one of those things where, you know, it was like, okay, so because of course it was like, we want to help and we want to do this. And it was like, you can help, but we need you to, to follow directions. Like right. there are, there are boundaries and borders with this. Um, if you are a non-black person, if you would like to help and come volunteer, if you'd like to hand out water, if you would like to do this, that's all you do. You don't get to chant. You don't get to be part of the March. Like you can be on the perimeter. Um, but this is not your thing, right? This, the focus is centered on black folks and blackness right now. And, and um, black, our, our, um, our theme was black existence is resistance. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was like, you know, you can be on the perimeter, but all of this in the middle is the focus. Um, and it was, it, it was a beautiful day. I mean, the folks that did come to volunteer, they were amazing. I mean, they stayed in their lane. They were supportive. They, you know, did not interrupt. They weren't like, you know, and it was kind of a beautiful, um, uh, mix of um, just humans coming together, right? And actually centering blackness without it being a thing. It wasn't like, you know, you're taking something away from me or that's not fair and it should be everybody and everybody should be together and I should be allowed to say Black Lives Matter too. And there was like none of that. It was just like, tell me what you need me to do. I'll stay in my lane. I'll, you know, I'll do this. And black folks were allowed to actually be together. And have a have a moment and be part of the movement and um, and the non black folks that were there that were volunteering was like I mean it was great it was beautiful it was it was awesome um, and then it got cold and then you know because we were wanted to plan like another but then of course it's Portland and it started raining and then there was that so the hope right. is that we can we can pick that back up as we go to have um, more moments like that especially for black folks in portland um and beyond um but that that just you know it's a long-winded version or answer to your your question around how my perspective and how i've seen things in portland kind of happen well and yeah i mean how do you encapsulate one of the most tumultuous years in that city's history you know i lived in portland for 25 years and i moved there from boston which people, you know, for growing up there and, and as a kid, not understanding the full weight of the racial history that exists in that city and how much as it has evolved and it has become more multinational and more wealth restrictive and more income uh, separated, that that history has been kind of shoved to the background and for lack of a better term whitewashed because the city's been kind of rebuilt and reconstructed over the last 40 years and you know boston kind of has this it kind of sits as a city on the hill of great educated liberal ideology because it's in massachusetts and portland in my experience was the same way because but 
again, there weren't the ratio of African American black people to white people is 98% to 2%. You know, mm-hmm. there and, and as a kid, I remember, and you know this growing up in West Lynn. And for people who don't know, West Lynn is a city or is a town, it's about what half an hour thereabouts southeast of, of yeah. Portland. Uh-huh. And I had ex-laws who lived there, and we would go there every once in a while for Thanksgiving. And even I, as a kid who grew up in at right at the poverty line, even me and people of my ilk would refer to that place as white bread land because it is super wealth concentrated, it's super white, and it's your typical palatial upper middle class gated cul-de-sac suburb. Mm-hmm. And as a kid getting to explore Portland as a teenager, the understanding was, okay, well, you can kind of go, you can go downtown, you can go to certain places, but don't cross the river. And if you do go to Southwest Portland or Southeast Portland, don't go to Northeast Portland because right. Northeast Portland's where the trouble is and where yep. Northeast Portland was, that's where the, the base of the African-American community in Portland was. And it was that way for the majority of my childhood. And I and and I wonder if you experienced this too in your time there. But one of the first things that really spoke to me about how much of a cognitive dissonance there was growing up in that city was hearing kids. And I went to an upper middle class high school in Portland. I went to Sunset, which mm-hmm. is not too far from where you are currently at high school now, a Jesuit. But hearing kids whose parents gave them much more idyllic lives than I did, telling me that they lived in the ghetto. And just looking at these people going, you have no comprehension of what you're talking about. And not understanding the racial intones that were there by just making that sort of observation, that casual throwaway observation, because they thought that where they were wasn't good enough for their standards. And having been to Boston and seen how African-American people lived there and seen mm-hmm. actual ghettos, because that's yeah. the way the city segregated itself through the 40s, 50s, 60s and 70s. And yeah. knowing that there were sections of town that had been legitimate ghettos going, you have no comprehension of that. Right. As a kid growing up for you, what what was your experience with that? Yeah, um, it's. It's funny because I, I I still hear that today from kids. I can't go across the river. I'm not allowed to go near Lloyd Center because it's gang infested. And I thought, what? Like when was the last when was the last time there? First of all, it's 2021 and the malls are no longer what they. <laughs> Lloyd Center is practically empty never, and dead. I think it might be the safest place actually for you. Right. To be with um. But I still hear that that sentiment of oh that's the that's the bad place or that's the the um, dangerous place. So at Northeast, even though it is one of the it is the most gentrified place now, like mm-hmm. there's the Whole Foods on every corner and there's like biker biking lanes every like biking lanes everywhere. Like it is it is far from the idea of what it used to be. But the but you know, years after, because gentrification kind of started in the, the 90s, right? And right. kind of built up, but that, that perception of Northeast Portland is still, is still really prevalent um, yeah. right now. Um, 
And my, I mean, our transition from moving from Northeast to West Lynn and with my family, my brother is 10 years older than me. And um, so my mom had remarried and uh, moved us out to West Lynn. And part of that, as she says in my film, was for the schools and it was a safer, safer neighborhood. The schools were better. Um, my brother was at an age too where, um, and this was where actual gangs were prevalent in Northeast back in the eighties. And, um, you know, there was a concern from him being a young black boy. Um, mm -hmm. and so, you know, moving us out to this suburban area, um, felt better, which a lot of families of color, like that's the reason you move to a suburb or move somewhere where it's nicer schools and nicer, you know, nicer communities, meaning safer. Um, if you had the means and you were able to do that, um, but we we didn't move to the top of the hill. We moved in this little blue collar cul-de-sac. And I think that was something I also fought as another stereotype um, growing up was that living in Westland that I was this rich, you know, kid. I, you know, my mom ended up divorcing and raising three kids on her own. She drove a two-door hatchback Hyundai. Um, we lived at the bottom of the hill. So there's pockets, you know, um, in upper class communities that are just regular folks trying to get by, you know, trying to do their thing. And so it was, you know, that twofold of fighting that I'm this like upper middle class rich kid, which was never the case. And so I hated, I hated telling people where I lived because mm -hmm. I would get this, oh, you're a rich girl. And I was like, man, I wish I was rich. My mom just brought a box home from the Salvation Army with some government cheese in it. So I don't know who, which person, you know, um, would be. And so that was, you know, difficult. Also being one of very few black kids, you know, uh, in Westland right. um, was a challenge. But um, yeah, Westland was definitely um, one of those places where like you are, you're in between Lake Oswego, which is another <laughs> upper class, you know, oh, yeah. and then on the other side is Oregon City. Right. So a lot of times if I and my mom, you know, my family was still in Northeast. My mom worked in Northeast. Um, so we were, you know, I was at we I was at school during the week and then I was in, you know, the city in Portland, you know, um, when I wasn't at school. So and every time I remember taking the bus, but we had to take the bus often. Again, my mom was a single mom. So we had wherever, if she was somewhere and couldn't get back to bring us somewhere, we had to take the bus places, which a lot of people didn't take the bus because they had parents that would drive them around or they got their cars or whatever. Right. But I remember waiting for the bus with my sister and like friends like, oh my God, where are you guys going? Oh, you know, I'm going, we're going into Portland. We got to meet my mom, whatever oh my God, that's so scary. And oh my God, why would you, you know, why would you go into Portland? Why would she let you go by yourself? And I'm like, what do you, why? Like, what's the, what is, you know, I never really understood what people thought was going to happen right. if they went into Portland. Like, I never, I never like understood it because a lot of the people that I was friends with or, you know, neighbors, either went to Lake Oswego or they went to Oregon City. Mm -hmm. And that was it. That was the only places they ever would venture to, right? That was the extent of their sphere. Yeah, that was that was the bubble. Lake Oswego, Oregon City, um, Westland. 
Um, so that was that was always like interesting of you know people's perceptions of um, outside of the bubble or what's out there, you know. Right. Yeah, and and you know it was crazy to think when I, when I was preparing to schedule this time to talk with you, I was thinking back to when I was still going to school and. Again, one of the reasons why I want to have you on is in 2014, you started this documentary film that you ultimately released called Black Girl in Suburbia and about your time in Westland and how that was reflected by your oldest daughter, Jayla, and her experience going to school as one of the few Black kids in her school. And I was really trying to think back to when I was in school and how many Black kids I knew in middle school and in high school. And amazingly enough i could only come up with one and the and and the only reason why i knew him was because he was there because he had the athletic prowess to be to get on the football team wow which again speaking to that time in that part of the country was not uncommon it was we need to make sure in order to meet certain diversity standards we would go and get schools would go and get kids out of areas that they don't necessarily out of those districts to yeah. come to these schools to meet those requirements. And a lot of the time it was because they had the athletic prowess necessary to give them something on the back end, kind of like an exchange for their ability to attend this school, mm-hmm. which when you think about it now, it's, it's, it sounds almost as insane in my trying to re uh, recollect on that as, as it might to you. I don't know, but mm-hmm. you know, what was, when you first came up with the idea to make Black Girls Review, what was your impetus to to kind of start getting this story put together? Um, so I it it was Jayla, like a conversation. She came home and said that a girl and mind you, I had just graduated from um, Pacific, mm-hmm. and um, like I think this was maybe a couple of days after. Or like my, it was actually like my last day of school because I think I was done in the fall, and didn't actually graduate or walk until like uh, May. But um, yeah, we graduated in May. Yeah, that's right. We did. We walked in May. Um, and so I remember it was like a couple of days after like my last class, and um, picked Jayla up from school, and you know she was like, "Mommy, I'm really sad. This girl was talking about my hair and how it's different," and and I was like, "Oh." Oh, oh, okay. I, I, this sounds familiar. And how old was she? I want to say she was probably like six, maybe. Okay. Six years old or something. Um, and so, and it, you know, our convert, we had this really great conversation and it's, it stirred something in me that I hadn't felt in, since I was lived in West Lynn. And as we started talking and we were, you know, and, she, and then she said, you know, how come I'm the only brown person in my class that doesn't speak Spanish? So she was recognizing that there were other children in her class with her same coloring, um, but they spoke a whole nother language and they had their own culture. Um, and so she was starting to recognize her differences, which for a lot of children, you just kind of go about, like you see things and it's like, no big deal or whatever but it's not until somebody says your hair is different or your eyes are you know where mm-hmm. you start to feel oh you, it is different like I never really until you pointed it out and then 
the, that sort of innocence, right, starts to kind of fade away and you start to really see like how different, especially if you are a brown child in a predominantly white space, you right. really like, ooh, I am, because you start to see other kids look at you a certain way and you're like, oh yeah, I am very different. Um, but we had a really good conversation and, uh, you know, I said, you know, the, this, it's the reality of the place that we live the state we live in. The state we live in doesn't really have a lot of Black people here. Um, mommy might be the only Black person in the grocery store. Daddy might be the only Black person at work. You might be the only one in your classroom. Like, that's, that's where we are. Um, but that doesn't take away who you are as Jayla and, you know, being a young Black girl. Like, you're beautiful and we, you know, you know, what parents do, you build your children as much as you can of giving, trying to give them a sense of self. Um, right. As much positive reinforcement as you can. As best you can, um, which is difficult because you also know you can tell them that in your own home, but as soon as they walk out of your home, it could be a, nobody else may be telling them that, right? Right. So, um, but I, I left that conversation so um, uh, troubled with myself because I had these, I had, I was angry and I was sad and I was, I had, I had um, suppressed so much emotions from my own experiences growing up in West Lynn. And so this conversation with Jayla triggered all of that. So I called my, my very first friend that I met in West Lynn, which just happened to be another little black girl, thank God. Um, and we, cause we, we ended up kind of being together throughout the whole, you know, all of the schooling, um, in Westland. And I was like, you know, I just had this talk with Jayla and, and, oh God, we, we really, we went through it like that. How did we survive that experience? You know? Um, and we had a good talk and I said, you know, I'm going to make a movie. Cause I had just learned how to make a documentary and how to tell a story. And I was like, I just learned the skill. I have this experience. I'm going to do, put the two together because I, I don't want my children, my two daughters, my two black daughters to experience the kind of isolation and um, like loneliness and feeling crazy all the time um, that things aren't happening when they are because nobody's talking about it. I don't want them to feel that way because they're going to have that experience, but I don't want them to internalize it and feel the same way I did. Mm -hmm. So that was really the the spark for this project. Um, I didn't, you know, I didn't have any money. I had never made a documentary before. Um, so I had no idea how I was going to do it. I just knew I was, it was going to happen. I didn't know how, I still don't know how I did it. Um, but it was, it was meant to be and the project took about five years um, to make. Um, and then I remember we had gotten a, a trailer done um, and we, you know, we, uh, um, did a Kickstarter project. That's how we got some funding to, to do this project. And I remember, um, the first donation that we got, it was like a thousand dollars. I think it, we had gotten a thousand. I think we, our goal was like, um, we put something random because we didn't think we would actually get it. So we put something like, like, uh, um, $11,000.43 or something weird. Um, and within the first two days we had raised like $2,500. And one of them was like a, 
a donation of a thousand dollars and I was like from a stranger and I was like whoa oh my gosh and I remember reaching out to this woman and I was like why would you know why did you donate that much money and you know and she said well I don't really have a thousand dollars to donate but I know this is a real experience and a real story and you have to make this movie wow that was like that was the first time where an out a, a stranger had seen the potential of this project mm-hmm. and put their money in it and invested in it. And that was the first time I was like, oh yeah, okay, this is serious. Yeah, this got real now. I actually have to do this. Um, and then we put a trailer out and I started getting um, uh, emails and messages from black women all over the country older black women like crying like I'm crying right now because this is my experience and I'm 70 years old and I've never shared this experience with anybody and oh my god thank god this is you know this is now being talked about and that was like I was like okay I this we have to do this we got to make this happen um because for you know I was focused on my children I wasn't really thinking about other you know uh women you know sure, I knew but, but as a mom that's what you do yeah um and so I I then understood that this was much bigger than myself and my children and um something that was necessary um a story that was needing and I had googled before I'd even started I googled um you know black families in white suburbs or something and nothing had popped up so I was like okay we we're doing this we're gonna make this happen so um yeah, it just kind of, you know, this film, I call it my third child because it, you know, you, you have this idea, you create it, you make it, and then now it's like out there. And I, I, I pretend like it's at college and it checks in with me every once in a while. So mm-hmm. something like this would be sort of a check-in like, hey, I'm doing good. I'm still relevant. I'm still kicking and I'm still moving. Um, so it's still, it's still this piece that is, it's almost uh, let's see, it's been out for about seven years now. Right. Um, and it's still relevant. It's still the stories, the experiences, it's still, um, which says a lot, which means we still have a lot of work to do. If there are children there, and there are children of color who are still having these experiences. So, um, yeah, so we just, it's, we got a lot of work to do. Yeah. And, and, you know, and I think about it, I think it was probably about 2014, 2015, right as the Obama presidency was starting to wind down. I remember it was the probably, I think the first time I started hearing the inklings that, oh, well, we now live in a post-racial society because mm-hmm. a black man has been president. That means racism doesn't exist anymore. Mm-hmm. That means everything's fine. We don't have to keep banging on about it. And as we've especially seen in the last five years, uh, it's been anything but. If anything, it seems like that that dichotomy has gotten even worse before it ever even got a chance to start potentially getting better. And, you know, I keep thinking about especially because right now, obviously, it's Black History Month being February. And I was also trying to think about how in the last like 24 to 36 months, there's been a lot of stuff brought up that was things that I never learned in school. And I was a real student of history as a kid in school. You know, I had no idea about Tulsa, Oklahoma 
in the early 20th century, I had, if you had told me that there was such a thing as Black Wall Street, as much as I hate to say this, but again, I was a child of the late 70s, early 80s America. I genuinely would have said, well, that sounds like a black exploitation film. Mm-hmm. But in seeing how culturally and socially we have gone back and dug up these chunks of history that we have conveniently buried and tried to disavow any knowledge of being thrust back into the forefront. You know, do you think that's, that's helped try and drive the conversation that we need to have at all, or, or kind of reaffirm the narrative at all, or what, what's your, what's your perspective on that, Ben? Yeah, that's like, it's loaded, right? So I also am a product of the seventies and had the same history, um, which again is intentional, false intentional history. Um, as you said, there was a lot of things, especially about the contributions that black people made um, in this country um, all over in, in every institution and system um, that we don't know about and we're still discovering. I, it's, I, I feel there was something I learned about um, a couple years ago about the Statue of Liberty. Mm that I had never known before, which is um, that it was a gift to America for abolishing slavery, that it was not a gift for immigrants, um, that the narrative that we know of the Statue of Liberty, when we think about the Statue of Liberty, was not the original meaning of it. Hmm. Um, and, you know, the fact that, you know, she originally had chains on her, her arms and her feet, and that actually, she has chains. If you do, if you Google an aerial view of the Statue of Liberty, you'll see chains on her feet. And that was one of the, the they had uh, between the sculptor and the, the powers that be in America, they had had America was basically like, well, we don't, we, we don't really want the chains and we need a better narrative other than it being about slavery. Um, wow. Yeah, I didn't know that either. See, this is what I'm talking about. We, 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 we need to, you know, we need to take the chains off and this needs to be about hope and, you know, all this kind of stuff. And so, but the, the sculptors were like, well, you know, keep the chains, at least keep the ones on her feet. So she's got, if you Google that, you can, it's a whole thing, but it's something we've not, we don't know. We don't know about that. Um, and even the tours that they would give on Ellis Island, they would never talk about that. Um, and it wasn't until this woman, Dr. Joy DeGruy, actually called, um, you know, New York Park and Rec out and said, this is, this is real history um, that you need to, on your tours, you need to talk about it. You need to have a picture up in the lobbies that shows those chains on her feet. Um, and so now she, she, you know, was able to get them to actually change that. So when you go, they do talk about it on the tour and you do see they have an image of the chains on her feet. But that is just an example of, had I known that and learned about that when I was in fourth grade, I mean, I would have, I would have looked at the Statue of Liberty. I would have had more pride. Right. And and we're a similar age where, and, and I would imagine you remember this as well, when they, when they restored the Statue of Liberty, there was the big thing back in the, in the mid eighties about how they needed to save the Statue of Liberty because it was falling apart. And they went through a huge reconstruction program and it was this huge, big patriotic thing yeah. of we're restoring the Statue of Liberty. But I don't recall in that 
any point ever. And to be fair, I was all of nine years old. So, right. <laughs> you know, I, I, but I don't want to use that as a, uh, an excuse, but, you know, at the same time, I don't recall in all the stuff that I ever watched about it, that that had ever been brought up. Yeah. It was it's, that it was a gift to us for, in a lot of ways, just for the fact that we made it to the first hundred years of our existence yeah. and, and had nothing to do with slavery. So, yeah. you know, but also, but we're seeing that now also with the the people who are trying to push back against how we are, we're at the tipping point as far as addressing civil war history and yeah. taking down the symbols of the Confederacy. And, you know, I, I, but I also read an article the other day about in San Francisco, and I don't know if you saw this about how, you know, there, there's a movement to change the names of all the schools in San Francisco. Uh, oh yeah, here too. Yeah, from like, from George Washington, Abraham Lincoln and all that stuff. But I heard somebody made the point of trying to say, oh, well, this means you're tying somebody like Abraham Lincoln to white supremacy. And I saw that and was like, I was like, wait a minute. <laughs> that part of history I remember. And okay. and I as but at the same time it, it did tweak my thought process of okay, how much of that is still of all that history that I remember assimilating as a kid, you know, and again, growing up in Boston, the one of the first black people I ever heard of was Chris Addicts. You know, you can go in Boston to the Old South Church. There's a monument to him right there at the site of the Boston Massacre. It's been there for a couple hundred years. You know, it, it that's not that the impact of that isn't lost on us, but how we are so you have so many different voices and so many different factions trying to rewrite the narrative spanning now, not just the last five years or 10 years, but also going back 250 years. You know, do you ever think we're going to get to a point where we can finally get the actual historical records straight? I, I don't know in my lifetime if that's going to happen. I mean, I don't think it would my, happen to mine either. I feel, but I also never expected to ever see a black man as a president or a black woman as vice president. I never mm -hmm. expected that, but it's happened. So there's some hope, but that, what you're talking about is deeply rooted systemic change, right? Um, and we got a ways to go before. Right now we're kind of, we're, we're hanging on the branches, so to speak, like we're kind of, you know, we're up there. We're, we haven't really gotten even to the trunk or the, you know, the root. We right. haven't even got there yet. Um, but I think we're living in a time where we're starting to kind of dig in there a little bit, um, which is great. Um, but, um, I think the history that I was brought, that we both were, were raised with came, came, comes from a very European white lens, right? Um, and that, that has been intentional from day one. Um, you know, liberties and freedoms for all men, uh, is great, but who were the people that, that said that were, were white men? speaking for white men. Right. Um, so when you, you know, in all, you know, freedom for all men's and um, I'm totally like blinking right now, but I think in, you know, talking about the systems that were, were put in place to, you know, have uh, freedom and liberty for all, well, 
the systems weren't built for all. The right. systems were built for white wealthy men. Um, and so it's this, it's, uh, we're in this sort of race, right? Where um, you have this, you know, American dream that you strive for that we all kind of grew up like, oh, I want the American dream, success and family and money and housing and all of these things. Um, which, you know, you, it's like dangling a carrot. You, you have this and there's, you know, Americans that no problem. I, I, I got, I see that carrot. I'm going to get that carrot and I'm going to, you know, do what I got to do. And, and it, it feels pretty easy. It's like, oh, I went, I grew up in this nice house and I got this education and I got more education and I got this job. And then I got it. Everybody has that same right. Everybody can do it. Everybody can, but not everybody can do it. Um, right. Everybody grew up in a, you know, uh, a home that had the two parents and two cars and, you know, um, in the nice neighborhood and um, had, you know, a father who benefited from the GI Bill. Black men, vets did not benefit from the GI Bill. So they were not able to establish that uh, generational wealth um, that a lot of white families got to um, when they came back from the war. So there were systems, the systems that were put in place were not meant for everybody. And that's just the reality. And we're seeing, I mean, we've always seen, those of us, many, especially Black folks, we, we have been knowing. <laughs> we've been, again, it's generational. So we, you kind of, um, you grow up knowing what, you, what, obviously, you know, knowing what you're capable of, but also knowing, you know, how to navigate the system knowing that the system was not built in, in mind for free black people. Um, and so you grow up sort of, you know, learning how to navigate, how to go around certain things, how to navigate, how do you get, you know, um, you know, it, it's just, it's all of those systems, right? Um, that for many folks of color, you just, you know that that's not for you and you, but you, you're getting pushed this sort of, you know, it's the American dream, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. And it's your, I mean, I, I still, there is still this, um, and I, I hear this, you know, sometimes in my work and I still do workshops with Black Girl in Suburbia, um, but I will still hear comments about this generalization of Black folks in particular, um, you know, well, Black Lives Matter is, is about getting struggling Blacks off the street and, um, and into successful programs so that they can be successful in life. And you're like, wait, is that how you see Black people? Is that how you see all Black people? Is that we are just out here flailing in the streets and we, we all need this help and, you know, only you can, can save and, um, but there is still this very clear um, there's this country also, in addition to racism, there is this anti-Black uh, bias um, mm -hmm. that is still very prevalent. Um, uh, and all of these things are things that are part of the system that does not benefit um, us. And we are now 
starting to have these really real conversations about whiteness, about white supremacy, about anti-blackness, um, because all of the, those three things are all part of the root. Right. And if we don't address everything that's at the root, nothing, those systems are not going to change. And that equality that we all want and the freedom and liberty for all that we all want is, is not going to happen. I know for me, I've, I have struggled with um, calling myself an American. I mean, I am American. I was born and raised here. Um, but I have never been able to identify with the flag. I've never been able to call myself an American um, because the perception of when you when you think of an American, you think white. You associate American with white. Um, and so for a lot of Black folks, you know, in particular, we don't really, I mean, yes, technically we're American, but we don't associate, right? It's sort of you're even, you know, you're black. Okay, you're American, but you're, you know, it's it's a difference, right? There, it's this um, strange strange thing. But but this year, you know, my husband and I, we we talked about like, you know, do, should we get a flag and should we, you know, should we start actually taking kind of back? Like we we are American. We too belong here. We you know we've been here. Um, and so just even the fact, even just having that conversation, right. And thinking about it, you know, cause yes, it's like, it's, yes, you are, you are an American, but if you don't associate yourself with that, um, that's part of that systemic, um, that's, that the problem. Um, so, uh, you know, it's now that we have, uh, Kamala and, and Joe and, um, and these, we have more more women of color in office. Um, I look at my children who are like, oh my God, they are amazing young people. Um, the students I work with are amazing young people. They get it. Like they grew up under an Obama presidency, right? So they, they were born into this world where it was about service and it was about caring and it was about coming together and all, while also acknowledging difference and celebrating difference. Um, and then we had four years of the opposite of that, right? Um, and so, but these young people are just like, you know, all of them, all, all culture, cultures and ethnicities of young people that I'm in contact with are even, even when they don't agree, they still get the common denominator, which is we all, uh, we're all human. We, we all need to come together. We need to be able to acknowledge and celebrate our differences and, and acknowledge that it's not equal. Um, there's a lot of inequities, um, but we need to find those, we need to find the root and we need to start, you know, healing um, the root cause of, of these issues. Yeah, I mean, you know, on the one hand, I, and, and like you, just trying to navigate through the last year, especially, but also transitioning from the Obama presidency to the Trump presidency and seeing that paradigm shift in our societal attitudes and our cultural, cultural attitudes and how everything that had been simmering under the surface for so long was finally just shot out in the forefront. And, 
you know, in a lot of ways, I understand and, and I understand the messaging because it's targeted for people like me. I am to fit the description. I'm a silver haired middle aged white guy. Right. You know, I'm the person that those people are trying to draw to their side saying, look, the reason why you're at your lot in life is because of black people and minorities and illegal immigrants and everything that white people feel like they are threatened by. And that if we give those people access to the American dream or just society at large, then it's going to diminish our capacity to have the same sort of life that we think we deserve or feel entitled to all those negative denominators that we apply to people now in regards to white supremacy, whether you subscribe to that theory or not, mm-hmm. you know, just the idea of we all, we all want the same thing. We all want to be able to, you know, grow up knowing that we can have the same opportunities. We can get those opportunities. We can live a rich, meaningful life. And if that means that I'm able to attain that and you're able to attain that and your husband's able to attain that, then, then nobody loses any skin in this game. Right. Everybody works, everybody parks, yep. everybody wins, but we still have this conflict of if X, then Y, if, if these people get raised up, then it's going to diminish us because the narrative is if we l- allow black people to have these sorts of opportunities and have these, these roles in society, they're going to use it against us that, right. that, that the 450 years of hate that we perceive has been built up and to a degree, legitimately. So I'm not yeah. saying it's not there. I'm not saying that, that that shouldn't be addressed, but the idea that that is going to come home to roost and it's going to be used as an, a, as a weaponized form against white society in America, right. even though we're so far removed from that. And, and it almost seems like to me that we, as, as that part of white society, that white supremacist society that is trying so hard to drive that narrative home to get more people behind them, mm-hmm. you know, it, it's, it's almost like they just, I don't know. I mean, that's, that's the part I just, I don't understand where, and I'm glad I don't understand it. I really am. I mean, on the one hand, I want to, but on the other hand, that's a rabbit hole I don't want to dive down into uh-huh. <laughs> because as a as a human being and as a person of conscience, you know, I look at what's going on and just go, I, I you know, I look at what was happening with the Capitol riots a couple of weeks ago. And I yeah. look at what's happening in the wake of that. And uh-huh. I look at everything that happened leading up to that and uh-huh. how, you know, I spent a lot of time in central Washington out in one of the agricultural hubs of the U- United States while being told these people who are out there picking all this food, they're going to come steal our jobs. So we have to throw them right. out. Right. Well, they're not, they're here picking food because white society wow. doesn't want to do that job. And right. we look at it and say, well, we're, we're above that. Well, there's right. so much hubris in this uh-huh. that I don't know. I mean, to me, it's just one where, I don't know. It, it's it's so and, and I guess for me, that's part of where I have been trying to figure out my place in all this, yeah. because I've had people ask me of, well, why aren't you getting involved? If, if this is where you stand on, why aren't you getting involved? And to me, yeah. my my logic on it was, well, I, I want to be involved and I want to be supportive. But my role and, and you touched on this at the beginning of our conversation, my role can't be at the front of this. Mm hmm. 
you know, to me, the logical thing is, no, I stand with these people. I stand with black, black America. Mm -hmm. And again, because I have no reason to not do it logically, emotionally, it, it I mean, makes for, sense for I, me to do that. If you're coming from the lens of being a human. So I'm, you know, I am, it's, it's that piece of human dignity, right? And respect that we all deserve. Um, right. I think, I mean, with the Capitol riots, um, which was hard to watch because, you know, if those people were Black people, we already know what that turnout would have been. It would have been a massacre. It would have been bodies all over the place. Um, and even now, the consequences for some of those people that are being, you know, let go or out on bail or getting organic food delivered in prison, like the kind of stuff that would have never happened um, if that group were Black folks. And then the, the comparison of that to the Black Lives Matter movement, like we're, we're kind of seeing, and then the deny or not denial, but this sort of like um, rose colored glasses covering of many Republicans of, you know, wanting to push accountability kind of to the side or under, or it's, oh, it's over, it's done. Let's move now, on. Now we need, we need unity now. We don't need, we don't need accountability. Which is, which is, it's a cycle. Like that's how that's how uh, supremacy and oppression works. It's this cycle of, um, I'm gonna rage, I'm gonna hate, and then I'm gonna come back and be like, okay, well, I didn't really mean it. Like, I, I you know, let's move on, let's have unity. One of the things that I, um, I was um, part of a, a, a conference, a workshop, and um, I heard the saying that just, I mean, it cements kind of all of that, the cycle of, you know, what maintains inequity, what, what maintains inequity, and, and she called it the three Ds, um, disconsciousness, denial, and derailment, mm -hmm. which is what I feel like we're seeing right now, right? It's this sort of, um, this uh, inability to or not, it's not an inability. Um, I like to use um, um, Minnie Jean Tricky. She was one of the Little Rock Nine. Mm -hmm. um, and I had the pleasure, my daughter and I had the pleasure to meet her a couple years ago and she's amazing. Um, but she calls it intentional ignorance. Um, so there is this intentional ignorance of, because uh, they are able to, they have this advantage this white advantage to be able to deny the rail and have disconsciousness to be disconnected to it um, because there's power there's power to do that so you can claim an ignorance oh I didn't know or oh, oh I, I had no idea it was going to be this bad and I just I didn't really mean it and um but what we're what we're seeing though and again I'm bringing young people back into this um that they're not falling for it. They're not falling for the banana in the tailpipe. We have people in office now that are not falling for the banana in the tailpipe. Like, right. say all you want to, but that no longer is is good enough. It's not good enough for you to just say you're sorry, um, especially when your actions say others, say other. Um, and so, you know, it's we're living in a very scary time, and especially as 
uh, a black person, I have fear every day of walking out of my house and something happening to me or my husband or my children. My, my youngest daughter got called the N-word for the first time this summer, just walking across the street with her friend who's also black. Wow. Um, at, you know, 15 year old girls just walking home from the store and, you know, a car full of white dudes, grown men yelling the N-word at us. Um, so, you know, and my nephew sitting in front of his house in his Beamer with his friends and getting the cops called on him. Like these things are still happening. Um, and it's scary because you, you, you know, there's it's sort of, you know, Pandora's box has been opened and um, people are angry and they feel they have every right to take out and say whatever they want to anybody they want. They feel they have the, the power to do that and they have been. So it's, it's scary. On the other hand, um, Black people have been doing this for hundreds of years. We have been surviving and we have been navigating and we have been, you know, trying to do um, the best that we can to live lives that, that are, um, you know, meaningful, um, the best that we can, despite all of the, the, the circumstances that we, um, that come our way. Um, and uh, so I think the times that we're in right now are, again, scary, but at the same time, I see hope again in, in our young folks. Um, and um, like I told, I told the kids, you know, our, my kids are not, you know, my daughter didn't have the graduation she wanted last year. Um, my, my junior right now isn't, doesn't get to experience, you know, prom and like doing all the things that she, you know, would normally be doing right now. But I, you know, I say to them, like, how great is it that you're going to get to tell your grandchildren that you were doing marches and act and being, you know, um, being involved in movements and, and talks and, uh, you know, having conversations with your friends about race, like how great you get to tell your grandchildren that you live during this amazing moment in time, like, um, and you get to change the world, like you get to do this, this is the time to do, you know, to really create real, you know, change for the future. And I, I'm, I'm like, constantly like, yeah, this sucks. Yeah, that sucks. But how great is it that you two, especially my two kids who have privileges, um, that you can, you have some power, you can make stuff happen right now. Um, and I'm, I am, I am looking, I'm happy that I'm a part, I'm not an old geezer. So when I talk about young people, I'm not saying it's all on them now, because I still got some, you know, I still got some life and some legs left to, mm -hmm. to help in this fight. But um, I am super hopeful because I feel this shift. And I, I you know, I have not had, I never thought I would be having conversations with white folks specifically about race ever. Um, if you would have asked me if I'd be having these conversations in high school, never, because any, if I would have ever brought up anything about, you know, oh, that comment was offensive or that didn't feel, you know, appropriate, I would get like, oh, you're being sensitive. Oh, it was just a joke. You know, the same sort of denial dismantle the flat kind of thing um but now that stuff's not flying anymore right so 
there's definitely a shift in the shift in this actually has to start with white folks acknowledging whiteness. Right. <laughs> I mean, that's the, that's really at the end of the day, that's kind of the core. White, white folks created the system and it's going to be white folks that dismantle it at the end of the day, because right. that's where the, the power is. So um, again, I think there is definitely you know, obviously there's more white folks having, I mean, we're here and I'm, I'm appreciative of you that you're, you know, you reached out to have this conversation because if, if we don't have this dialogue and we don't have this con these conversations, we can't, you know, like move forward. Um, and I would, you know, in challenging you, like after this, like, I know this is a podcast that's going to go out and it's like, okay, what other conversations can I have with other white folks to talk about what we're doing as white folks in this and acknowledging our own bias and recognizing it and um, the systems that we do uphold and, and uplift consciously or not, you know, what, what does that look like in doing that internal work? Um, that's, you know, that's key in this, um, how we're going to shift um, or get, you know, getting down to that route. It's going to take uh, white people to to do some heavy lifting in this. And that's, and it's not going to be easy. And no, no, absolutely not. You know, and it's funny that you mentioned that because, you know, in, in talk in this conversation we're having, and you're, you've hit on a couple of times in talking about how the system is designed. And, you know, again, I, I fit the antithesis of anything that, that any black person can, can say that they've had the experience of. And, you know, people tend to look at me and go, well, you have had you've had all the privilege because of the fact that I was born a white person. And to be fair, I've had an extent of it. But also growing up at the bottom of the economic ladder, it is one where and, and you mentioned it growing up in West Lane. Uh, well, you live there, so you must be rich. You know, mm -hmm. people think, well, I grew up in, in the, the Portland suburbs, so I must be rich. I wasn't, you know, but also. You know, my experience is different because the most exposure I've had being around black people in my early teens was being in prison mm. and understanding how that system works. And it wasn't like I spent a night in jail for something. I spent 14 and a half months in three prisons in Oregon getting bounced around. And mm -hmm. the, the constant, the highest concentration of people that was there were black people. They were black right. men who yeah. eventually had to get out and try and figure out what were they going to do. Right. And having been through that system and seeing how you want to talk about a system that is designed for you to fail, that system is more than designed for you to fail. Be right. and, and knowing how that has helped insulate the argument against Black people having any sort of opportunity and any sort of advantage because you've had four, five, six generations of young black men having to be put through that system. Right. And, and I'm not saying that doesn't, you know, and the thing I always see all the time is, well, if you, you know, don't do the crime, don't do the time. But when you understand the legality and how the legal system works and how it is slanted to ensure that people of minority descent are able to get into that system easier than it is for white people to get into that system. Right. And if you're a poor white person, yeah. And if you're a poor white person, your odds are only a little bit better, but not, right. but not much, you yeah. know, and mm -hmm. knowing how, how hard it was for me to go through that system and come out on the other side and be able to get to where I'm at now. And knowing that 
there's a lot of people that were there with me who probably went back at least two, three, four times, not because they wanted to, but yeah. because the system is set up that it ensures you will inevitably end up there because yep. going out and getting a job, trying to find a place to live, trying right. to be productive in society that doesn't want you there because it only sees you this one way. To me, that's a conversation that I know needs to happen, too, and it's starting to. I'm seeing how, you know, there is traction on changing the criminal system because the crime bill in the 90s accelerated all that. And we saw how much the militarization of the police and how much that really locked down and focused on areas like Northeast Portland, like out the outskirts of Boston, how predominantly black neighborhoods were unfairly and unequally impacted because white people said we have to deal with this. This is where the crime element is without yeah. understanding that the social systems, the economic systems, everything had been channeled. So that was really the only, for lack of a better term, the only option that most black people had was to mm -hmm. start doing illicit activities and illegal activities just to make a living. Yeah. You know, yeah. it, 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 it's, you know, for me, that's something that, that I know as a white person, that's an area I would definitely like to try and explore more of. But, I, you know, there's so there's so many elements. and You're absolutely right. There are so many different ways that we need to work with black people and understand exactly what we need to do to dismantle these systems. But also, it seems like the last thing we need to do is is be doing it from the front. You know, we we can't be the ones that are hijacking the movement. We need to make sure that we are we understand where we sit in that hierarchy and let and let you guys do what you need to do. Because <laughs> again, it's it's your community, it's your it's your part yeah. of society, it's your life that you I guys would, need to try and get better. Yeah, and I would rephrase it maybe a little differently. I think I would say, you know, we have been doing our thing. Mm -hmm. Um as we always have, and we're going to continue to do that. I think the difference now is white folks are now part of this conversation about race. Usually in the past, when we would talk about race, it would be on the onus of people of color to talk about it and leaving white folks out. Now, white folks are like, oh, I'm, I, I you know, you, you'll hear, I don't have culture, I'm white. I'm, I'm not part of a race, I'm white. Like, this disconnect again of being American and then the other. Um, and so I think for communities of color, we're gonna continue to do our thing as we always have until the system gets healed. Now though, white folks are actually needing to, I'm not saying take the lead because again, communities that we're gonna keep thriving and surviving and doing our thing as we always have for generations. But the difference now is that white people can support that, but white people also have to do their own work. And that is going to take, that's going to take generations, right? Because you right. think talking about generations, you talk, you think about, and I, I'm going to go back to Dr. Joy DeGruy, who um, is an amazing woman. She's uh, uh, family is in Portland um, and she uh, has done work around post-traumatic slavery syndrome um, and the and this generational um, uh, behaviors and uh, 
Um, uh, I, I'm skipping on, on a word right now. Anyway, Google post-traumatic slavery syndrome. Um, and she kind of, you know, she, she gives some really good examples of the, you know, the consequences of slavery. Like you, you, you know, you have one, one day you're a slave, the next day you're free, but you have no money, you have no resources, you have no care from the trauma you have experienced. Right. Um, you are just, you're out there with this system that is now saying, no, no, you can go do, you're a free man. You can be whatever you want and you can, you have all the same rights as everybody else. You're a free man now. Not at all, because then now, then we have Jim Crow law, and then, <laughs> then we have, you know, our um, uh, what's happening in our prison system. But you know, you think about the same with white folks, generation after generation, and you think about the trauma that white people, in in the sense of, you know, you are, you know, you you're a, a slave master who has a young son who is best friends with a, a slave boy, an enslaved boy. Um, and then those two boys grow up. And one day the, the young white boy is told, okay, this is now your property, not your friend. Right. And the, um, the trauma that happens of then having to transition from caring about this human being to now you're my property. And I now have to you know, train you or whatever the case and the trauma that happens there. And then the, the ideology of all of that and that being passed down generation to generation. So white people got generations and generations and generations of uh, your own trauma and things that you are just now starting to tap into. And, and until that gets um, looked at and gets checked and recognized and there is more education around whiteness, again, that's, you know, again, communities of color, we won't, we gonna be all right. We're, we always have been, we've made it to this point, we're going to be fine, but it's now white folks have to start centering, centering, um, centering is not the right word, doing your own work on how you have contributed to this thing that we call race. Another thing to Google that I've, I've learned over the years is the term race itself um, and why we use it to describe the color of our skin. Mm. And it's intentional. Again, all of these systems are intentional systems. Um, and it's, it, you know, it's because this whole thing that we call this system, it's, it's an actual race. And so the term race is using it to describe, you know, skin color is to position people, you know, in this race. Um, so Google, you know, the definition of why race, but but those are things that, you know, we all, again, in our history, we all need to know these things of the why. Like, why do we call it race? Why, why were we put in categories? What's the, you know, what is the system you're talking about? This is where Google comes in, where Google is great. You Google it, you put something in, and you do your own research. But for white people right now, it's the time to really like, yes, uplift the black community, uplift our Latino brothers and sisters, uplift our Jewish community, like do all of those things, but also tap into, you know, you know, I, 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 I tell folks, you know, go have a conversation with your family, ask your, your brothers and your sisters, like, well, you know, we, we, we've never had a black teacher. Have we ever had a black teacher? I don't think I've ever had a black teacher. Um, 
well, you know, mom always used to say this about, you know, this person walking down the street or this neighbor. And now I sort of have this, I realize I have a bias towards people that look like that neighbor because that's all mom, you know, would talk about when they saw him. And I now recognize I too have this bias when I see somebody that looks like that neighbor all the time. Yep. We all have bias. It's, it's, some, it's a human and natural thing. We all have it, but to, it's one thing to recognize it when it comes up so that you can say, thank you, bias. I see you, I got you, but I'm gonna do or make a different decision. That's not based off of what I think something is or, or someone is. And that's, that's the work right now that white folks really have to do so that you're not putting the onus on people of color to, um, you know, fix it or, or guide you through. It's one of those like, and again, that's years, you know, that's stuff that we won't really start to see the after effects of that um, for, you know, maybe another generation um, or so. But, uh, you know, it's, it's that, that storytelling that often that folks of color share. Um, it's now time for white folks to say, you know, I, here's my experience around bias. Here's how, you know, um, I, there's this, this white woman who shared how she uh, recognized where her bias comes from. And she said, you know, I remember my first, one of my first memories with my father, I was like four years old and um, we were walking down the street and uh, we were walking by a black, this black man. And um, I had dropped something and the black man picked it up and handed it to me. And my father looked me in the eye and grabbed me and said, you don't, you don't ever talk to people that look like that. You don't talk to people that look like that. You don't, you know, you don't look at people that look like that look like that. And so she said, um, you know, she's like, and I, I, I grew up thinking I'm, you know, I'm with everybody. I love everybody and I'm not racist and I'm not biased, but you know, she said, but there, it wasn't until she understood what bias was and she related it to this memory, her first memory of an interaction with this, this black man and her father scolding her yeah. for doing it, you know? And so she said, you know, I had to recognize I actually had fear. I realized I, I had this feeling of fear when I would see black men um, and finally connected to why, you know, she had that, but that's an example of how to connect and recognize what that is. And until a lot of white folks connect to that and understand it, um, a lot of a lot of what we're seeing right now, a lot of those systems are not are not going to change. It's it's doing and it's not you know it's hard. It's it's uncomfortable. It's you physically get tired and it's exhausting. But welcome to the world of being black. <laughs> it's exhausting. You're tired. You're emotionally exhausted. But we still get up every day. We still you know, despite all of the things that can happen. Um, you gotta, you gotta move through it, you know, and you, you, you gotta grow. But um, that I think is the movement for white folks right now is coming is a reckoning of, you know, I, we gotta, we're part of the system and we gotta figure out how we individually, you know, support it or we don't. And we need to figure out, you know, um, as individuals, how am I helping or contributing to, um, to move forward in a more equitable way where, you know, moving and recognizing um, our own bias. And so just how am I contributing day to day and who am I talking to? And do I have an understanding of black culture? There's a lot of white people that don't even know anything 
about black folks because they've never been exposed or have never thought that they needed to be right because we're all one and we're all people and everybody mm-hmm. has the same experience I do um so I think it's it's all of those things right having more experiences talking to more people and doing exactly again like what we're doing but having conversations with other white folks as well and saying how do you recognize your bias like how when you do recognize it what do you do and how do you move through that um um, having, you know, having more of those conversations. Right. Well, and, you know, you and I can have this conversation for another hour and a half, and I probably would still not know a tenth of what I need to or what I probably should know. But, you know, that's one of the reasons why I wanted to have you on, because I knew this was a con- Again, when I said it from the outset, I knew this was a conversation I wanted to have. I knew it was a conversation I needed to have. And uh, in all sincerity, it's a conversation I'm glad we had. Because like you said, it's a start and this is going to take a lot more people than you and me. And it's going to take more people than our kids. And it's going to take a long time, but the, the road has to start getting paved somewhere. Right. And, and we are at that point where that road can lead one of two ways. It can lead back to where we started from, or it can lead somewhere better. And I can only hope that it's going to lead somewhere better. And I know from my own perspective and where I stand, I certainly want to do everything I can to help get it there, not just for my kids, but for your kids and everybody else, because it's just going to make a better world for everybody, you know? And at the end of the day, again, that's all we want. We just want the world to be better. We want to leave the world a better place than what it was given to us. How great would it be to actually send your kids to your neighborhood school? Because mm -hmm. it has all of the things that helps all of the children do what they need. How great is it that you don't have to move outside of your neighborhood because you already have all the resources right there. That's, that's equity. That's, that's what we're talking about when we're talking about equity, that you don't have to, nobody has to go anywhere because you have what you need. Everybody has those tools equitably right there in your community. Right. And that's progress. And that's right. true progress. That's lasting progress. Right. And that's something I think we could look back on, a hundred years from now, if we could make that happen and know we were at a very critical point in our history that is worth something that's worth acknowledging. That's not worth putting in the ground and burying like we did with so many other things. So her name is Melissa Lowry. You can find her online at blackgirlinsuburbia.com. Thank you so much for giving me this time. I genuinely appreciate it. Thank you for educating me. Thank you for letting me listen to you and your side of it and kind of getting as much as I can out of it so I can have a better idea of what I need to be doing and how to help move this conversation forward. Thank you so much for the skull session. Thanks for having me, Devin. Good to see you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Skull Sessions. Melissa's film, Black Girl in Suburbia, is available to view on Vimeo and is also available for local screenings in your area. More information is available at her website, blackgirlinsuburbia.com. If you like the show or have recommendations to how to make it better, please leave a review. It really does help. And if you want to contribute to the show, you can on my Patreon page at patreon.com slash Devin J. Higgins. For as little as $5 a month, you can be a producer and have your name included here at the end of the show. You'll also get advance notice of upcoming shows and first crack at bonus content once I've been able to figure out just what that'll be. And I know I keep saying that, but I promise it will happen. Such is the problem of trying to afford million ideas with a 10 cent head. All Patreon proceeds go towards keeping the show going and making it better through the purchase of new equipment. So as always, I'll make sure your investment is well spent. Music for the show is provided with full permission by my sister, Rowan Church. 
You can follow their band, The Crystal Furs, at crystalfurs.bandcamp.com. Their new album's in the works and set to come out later this year, but their full catalog is available. And if you're looking for new music to add to your daily repertoire, go ahead, give them a look. Skull Sessions is a presentation of Pressbox Productions, copyright 2021, all rights reserved. I'm Devin Higgins. Thanks again for listening, and I'll be back next week with another Skull Session. Talk to you then. Bye. Bye.